Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, Kitchen Chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is Margaret McSweeney, your host, and I'm broadcasting here in my kitchen counter in the Chicagoland area. For those new listeners, welcome. I am so appreciative that you're dropping by my kitchen, and for those uh, regular listeners, welcome back. By way of background, I'd like to share a little bit of information about Kitchen Chat and, and what happens here each week. And for full disclosure, I have to also share that I am probably the world's most horrible cook, but I love food and I love to learn about food and and I want to overcome my fear of cooking with the hopes of becoming a, a competent and confident home chef. And my goal is by my 50th birthday, which is next March. So I hope you will join me in my culinary quest as each week some wonderful guests come to the kitchen virtually. And I learn and and I now also another full disclosure, I'm going to try not to be afraid to admit when I don't understand a culinary term or technique or, or dish or ingredient. And um, I want to encourage those of you out there who are listening and and are a little bit timid and unsure in this whole culinary process as well to to, to just have the courage to ask questions. And, and I'm going to try to do the same. And we will all learn together as we take this culinary journey and meet lots of fun and interesting people. And today I am just thrilled, thrilled to introduce to you the founder of the Paris Kitchen. And her name is Wendy Lynn, and she is from the South. And ironically, we went to the same college in Birmingham, Alabama. Can you believe that? And I cannot wait to hear about Wendy Lynn's culinary journey, as I like to term it, from grits to gruyere. So, Wendy Lynn, (laughs) welcome to Kiss and Chat. Well, bonjour, (laughs) y'all. Bonjour to y'all. I love that. Well, first of all, if you could please share with our listeners, and and listeners, by the way, Wendy Lynn is in Paris right now. She lives there and is um, so graciously taking the interview from there. And I'd love for you to share with the listeners, how did you end up in Paris? How did you end up becoming such great friends with some of the most famous chefs in the world? Could you share a little bit about your journey with us? Yeah, well, it actually started. We both went to Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was the only university I actually chose to go to because I wanted their uh, program, which was based in London, mm-hmm. for journalists who had the opportunity to work in the House of Parliament and et cetera, which I ended up doing my last semester of college, but I was actually headed back to the United States to work for Southern Living Magazine to marry a 
um, particular young man from Montgomery, Alabama, whose daddy was a circuit judge. And <laughs> life was set in front of me, but back in those days, there was an email and you couldn't call your travel agent. So I had a paper ticket and I had five days left on that paper ticket before I flew back to the States to start my life. And I thought I'll go down to Paris and see the Eiffel Tower for a few days and plan my wedding and etc. And after 24 hours in Paris, I knew I was never going to have a life that I had spent the last 10 years planning for myself. And I ended up staying here in Paris. So that's how I actually came to Paris. And staying is a is a whole other novel in itself, but because I'm a, <laughs> because I'm a Southerner and I'm from Panama City, Florida, Southerners um, embrace food in a way that I don't think anyone else but Southerners can quite comprehend how they embrace food around the table. It's a, it's an event, and and going to college in Birmingham back in the late 80s. There was not really anything there but a TGI Fridays. And going to London in the late 80s, Gordon Ramsay was still playing soccer. He wasn't even a chef. So food was never anything that was part of my life or my experience outside the South. And I think when I came to Paris, I within 24 hours, I realized that food was the center of everything. Yeah. Um, and so I played it out an extra three weeks, an extra three months, and three months became three years. And now I've been here 22 years as of this last August the 29th. And um, wow. the, the, as you say, the best chefs in, in France and in the world are my good friends. But that's because eventually over time I ended up uh, as a restaurant consultant in public relations and marketing and launched uh, over 40 restaurants in four countries. So right now oh. I'm retired doing food tours, but it's the reason why I still know so many people in the food industry. They're just, they just like family. So that's it. Exactly. And we have just so much to talk about. Oh my goodness. You've you've encapsulated your journey in an incredible nutshell. Oh my goodness. That is just amazing. So it started off with a big decision in terms of letting go of the past and really embracing the future of which the unknown future. <laughs> yes, the unknown future in which food ended up playing a very integral role. Now, you'd mentioned about um, launching 40 restaurants. Could, could you take us back to there? And were you doing this from Paris or from the yes, States? Yes, it was. A, it what was, did you do? No, I was, I was doing it here from Paris, but I mm -hmm. actually was working um, as the director for public relations international for Ellen Ducasse, uh, mm -hmm. who most, most people know here in France, and also a chef named Guy Savoie, but most people who don't speak French would recognize his name pronounced as Guy Savoy, <laughs> and also Charlie Trotter there in Chicago. Yeah. Hello, Charlie, if you're listening. Uh, and, and, also, and Wendy Lynn, I have yeah. to take a further step back. How did you end up, okay, so you're in Paris, you made this huge decision, how did you end it's, up it's, with uh, Alan it's a, it's a, and everything? It's a long journey. It's a, it's a wow. novel that's waiting to be written. But uh, eventually, <laughs> it's just being being in Paris and being curious and being a foodie and being an American uh, endeared me to some of the people here who could not understand why I couldn't speak the language but just was not leaving their bakery until they told me how they made that bread. <laughs> uh, and also, Guy Savoie loves the story of me meeting him in the market and my asking if this thing that was in front of me was a green pineapple and it was an artichoke. I'd never seen an artichoke oh. in my entire life. An artichoke <laughs> in the South is a dip you uh, served during the Super Bowl game or an SEC, uh, SEC playoff game. So, right. you know, it was, a, it was a huge, long learning journey for me. But uh, the fact that I was uh, so endeared to this country and was not giving up until I learned every last step of 
what they were doing. Um, I guess endeared me to a few people, but we just ended up becoming friends and they trusted me to tell their story and their voice and, right. and my background in journalism, PR, marketing, public relations, international business through university, I guess just set me up for that. But how I fell into it, please, I have absolutely no idea. Oh, it was, <laughs> I'm just absolutely blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Your fate is food. So <laughs> that is just incredible. And what a fun journey. Oh, food in France. What was your first meal in France that was most memorable? Do you recall that just really? Oh, of course I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually with uh, Guy Savoy, as I mentioned, Guy Savoy, and I opened, yes. he's got a three Michelin starred restaurant here in Paris, and I uh, launched his second restaurant there in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He is uh, one of the very first people, when I grew up in um, Panama City, Florida, we grew up on the Gulf of Mexico or the St. Andrews Bay, mm-hmm. and before I went to high school, my grandfather took me, I thought everyone in high school went to fish and scallop and shrimp for lunch Aww. and dinner before they went to high school. I had no idea I was the only one. And knowing where the, where the, where the shrimp came from, who did it, what, you know, where, where it came out of the ground, what was happening was a huge thing. As I mentioned in college, that didn't exist. And so coming here to France, when I met Guy Savoie, I told you, he was laughing at me because I didn't know what an artichoke was. I thought it was a green pineapple. <laughs> and he invited me to his restaurant, and he put a plate down in front of me, and I was very intimidated because obviously this was um, fine dining on a scale I had never known before in my life. Oh. And I, he put a plate down in front of me with several things on it, and he asked me to taste it. And because I was so intimidated... Mm-hmm. I took one bite of the food and I said, oh, chef, it's fantastic. And he was <laughs> quite irritated with me, which he's the most wonderful grandfatherly figure you can imagine. So Aww. for him to be irritated with me actually upset me. But he said, you're not thinking about it. You're not even asking me where the food comes from. How do you know if it's good if you don't know where the food comes from? And he spent the next three weeks taking me to meet his food producers, from his oyster guy up in the, the English Channel off the coast of Brittany, to his artichoke guy in Brittany, to his hazelnut oil guy, to his lobster guy, to et cetera. And he made me come back, and he made me taste that dish after spending time with all of these people. And when he put the dish in front of me and he said, now I want you to taste the dish again, Hmm. I literally burst into tears. I couldn't eat the dish because I knew what he was trying to tell me. It was like my grandfather all over again saying, see, we're going out on the shrimp boat. This is what we're having for lunch. See, these are the scallops that we're getting. They taste different when you have them at dinner. It truly transformed the way that I thought about things. And it's truly the way that a lot of people don't realize about French cuisine. They think it's fancy and it's snobby, but truly French cuisine is about where does that food come from? Because in the United States, you've got chickens, you've got cheese, et cetera. But in France, there are only certain chickens, only certain cheeses, only certain wines, only certain um, truffles, only certain kinds of products that are grown in certain parts of France. So the plate that Gisava put in front of me represented a tasting of all of these regions and made me hunger for more to know, well, who are these people? Where do their stories come from? What are they doing? Why is this so special? And it, it transformed my way of dining. So to answer your question, yeah, that I don't I don't remember I don't forget that meal ever. <laughs> oh, oh, that is just amazing. So really, it, people should not be intimidated when going to France no. and, and sampling French cuisine because it can be, you know, intimidating because the haute couture, you know, haute cuisine, all of that combined and. And really, it's truly 
life being served on a platter. It, it, it really is, and it can be intimidating. As I said, you know, you in the States, you've got certain kinds of chickens, right? And right. you come to France, and there are certain kinds of chickens, but they're grown in certain kinds of regions. So if they've got blue feet, you know where they come from. If they have uh, black feathers, you know where they come from. Right. And when I go to the market, I choose my chicken whole. And when I go back to the States, my daddy makes fun of me because I go to the grocery store with him and he pulls off the chicken out of the display in the grocery store, which right. there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't see the head, the feet, the feathers, the skin, the bones, the eyes, the beak. I see nothing. And I don't know where that chicken comes from. <laughs> it's just, and so in a way, it sounds a little bit snobby because France is, takes itself truly too seriously. But the thing is, is that when people come here, they, they, they learn the word poulet, which means chicken. But yeah. you'll never see the word poulet on a menu because it will have the kind of chicken that Oh. comes from a certain part of France, which is most famous is probably the breast, B-R-E-S-S-E chicken. And oh. it has pale tail blue feet. It can be about 40 euros a birth. So not knowing that, going to the grocery store, if you just pick up a chicken with no feet, no head, no beak, no eyes, no feathers, no bones, that kind of thing, you don't know what you're, what you're, what you're buying. And you, people in France know when they buy something, what region it comes from. And it's a notion that we call terroir, and that's spelled T-E-R-R-O-I-R. So coming to France is a little intimidating because you don't know um, all of these things. It has nothing to do with haute cuisine or fancy yeah. service. It has to do with, do you know the kinds of mushrooms? Do you know the kinds of chickens? Do you know the kinds of cheeses? And those those things take time to get to know. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's France is definitely not about fancy, fancy anymore. It's about very casual restaurants with about 18 tables. That's it. It's amazing. And let's go back to that term terroir. Uh, terroir. Yes. <laughs> it is. A, no, terroir is perfect. And, and so really what that's about, and, and does that, uh, I guess, loosely translate something with earth with or, or land? It, with it does. Terroir means, um, loosely translated, uh, not necessarily translated. It's, it's, it's meaning definitely means. Um, for instance, if you have a Pinot Noir grape growing in Australia, or you have a Pinot Noir grape growing in California or Oregon, or you have a Pinot Noir grape growing in South Africa and France, the Pinot Noir grape is the constant, but the, so- the sun, the rain, the soil, the temperature, the climate, the winds, the techniques, all of that have a hand in making that particular Pinot Noir grape, Australian, California, or Oregon, Oregonian, excuse me, um, South African or French. And so terroir is a huge notion here that when you make something, when you grow something, which is why certain chickens, certain olives, certain cheeses, certain butter, certain things just don't grow in certain parts of France because the terroir makes them what they are. So in the north, in Normandy and Brittany, you've got cream, creamy cheeses, butter, um, just beautiful things. And then in the south of France, you have olive oil. They do not cook with butter. And that's their their terroir. So it's just knowing um, when you come to France that terroir defines chicken, mushroom, these these vague phrases that you can learn. And when you come to France, just knowing that there is over a hundred varieties of all these different things and they come from different regions, um, actually do help know. I mean, being clueless in France, truly. (laughs) Truly. 
And you had mentioned, I'm sorry, back to um, Normandy um, or the northern part of France. You'd mentioned it was creamy. Now, why is it creamy? What it's, it's uh, in, Normandy, in Normandy? In Normandy, their their agricultural base is are, are cows. Oh, and it's, it's more dairy land. Now they do. They're definitely known for their apples, for their cider, and things like that. But the cows make it incredible because of the terroir. Means the yeah. rain, the sun, the soil. Its effect on the grass or the hay, depending on the time of year. They make an incredible butter, an incredible cream, an incredible milk, an incredible yogurt. Uh, even the chickens uh, have a certain flavor in the eggs coming from Normandy. So it's just a region that's yeah. very creamy. But in terms of the South. Yeah. Those things don't do well in hot climates, as we know. Yeah. And so they rely on olive oil. And olive oil is the basis of their cooking. Oh, this is, and it all boils down to terroir. Ter- <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, being, it's, it's, region, it's regionalism. I mean, I understand in the United States if I said, oh, I have this fantastic milk that comes from Atlanta, Georgia, versus uh-huh. Los Angeles, you'd think I'm out of my mind because that's such a long distance. <laughs> but France is the size of Georgia and, 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 and Alabama and maybe a little right. bit of Mississippi put together. And there are just certain regions where the north is more like um, Maine, the mm-hmm. south is more like uh, California and you know Napa and Sonoma, et cetera. So there are certain regions that do certain things. And just instead of knowing that chicken, mushroom, um, you know, ham, uh, mm-hmm. veal, et cetera, knowing that there's only certain regions of France where these things are produced and knowing that they take their name from the region from where they're produced is actually a huge influence on the terroir. I mean, everyone here knows what their terroir is. You would never buy a butter in the south of France because they're not making it. It's always made in the north in Brittany versus in Brittany and Normandy. They're never making olive oil because it's too cold up there. The olive trees mm-hmm. can't grow. So they're always in Provence. So after 22 years here, trust me, I was so lost in translation after about six years. But after a while, you start to realize what cheeses, what meats, what what uh, oils and shortenings and fruits and produce and things like that. And then you add on top of that the seasonal times of the year. It it is overwhelming. But here we just know everything by the season. We know uh, where it comes from. We know what its terroir is, and that's basically how chefs shops for food shop for food. That's how the local shop for food. It's uh, it's. I, I don't know how to go to a grocery store um, now. And as I said, I love my daddy, but when mm-hmm. I go home on Sunday, when I go home, he's shopping at the grocery store on Sunday for the entire week, and he's asking me what I want on Thursday. I have no idea what I want on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. So, I love you, and I appreciate it, but I am so used to just waking up on Thursday and saying, "I'm going to go to the market. I'm going to see what's in season. I'm going to." see what's fresh and yeah. when I look at it then I know what to bring home so it's just oh. it's not it's not meant to be snobby it's just a completely different way of shopping and 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 seeing 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 food through different eyes seasonal yeah. eyes I, I should say way. and I just want to mention listeners one thing I, I'm so sorry I, I omitted that Wendy Lynn has been recently named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the top 10 culinary guides in Europe and you can go to her website, thepuristkitchen.com, and, um, you know, try to book a tour. But, however, she gets like 800, what was it, emails a day, and uh, you need to, to book at least six months in advance. 
for one of her tours, and, and she will personally walk along with you. And I know we're going to kind of take a virtual tour together in, in a few moments, but um, I just want to encourage you listeners, uh, go to her website, uh, theparriskitchen.com, and um, you can sign up and register for one of her food and wine walks and talks and, and see in person and, and sample and savor in person what she is describing here. So this is just fascinating that, um, you know, from one decision 22 years ago, you are now one of the top 10 culinary guides. Tell me about it, honey. Oh, it's just so exciting. Yeah, from the grits to Gruyere, I tell you, that's just been neat. And I've also enjoyed how you have been able to still kind of sample a bit of the South. I was reading uh, on one of your blogs and, and on the website, she has the most delicious pictures posted. Oh my goodness. With, with the different restaurants visiting and the food she's sampling. And um, I loved, loved, loved reading about the fried chicken that you had. And how the French were appalled that you just picked it up and you were, you know, eating it like a southerner, the good old fried chicken. <laughs> well, I know it's overstated, but you can take the girl out of the South, but you cannot take the South out of the girl. <laughs> oh, could you share with us about this amazing chef you featured uh, who prepared the fried chicken? And uh, just Yes, he's, a, he's one of the most influential chefs in France, which I know sounds a little bit snobby, but he's not. He's from the French side of the Spanish border. Mm-hmm. He looks like Elvis. He's <laughs> inspired loads of chefs to uh, kind of eschew Michelin stars. It's not about getting Michelin stars. It's about having a fun local place that's affordable and approachable. Everyone can come and get beautiful products from all regions of France mm-hmm. prepared in different ways where it's affordable, meaning three courses for 32 euros, which is about $50. Wow. And he mm-hmm. is uh, his restaurant is standing room only, 12 to 6 during the day for lunch. There's a line of at least 175 people waiting outside this restaurant of only 40 seats. And at night, he um, puts little puts linen tables on the tables, and it's about 50 euros in the evening, but it's eight courses, and it's phenomenal. He's phenomenally Michelin-starred trained. He has these beautiful products. But at the same time, he wants his food to be approachable, and he's one of my dearest friends in the world. And my, my French chef friends are fascinated where I'm from. The way that I mm-hmm. eat oysters is completely different than the way that they do and etc. And he wanted to make something just for me, which is which is French. And I said, yeah. but you don't you excuse I mean I'm saying this to be facetious, but I said, but you ain't got no fried chicken, honey. I'm not even here. <laughs> what fried chicken? And so when I started to explain it to him, he tried to make it for me. Aww. And it turned into one of the funniest uh, unintentional but funniest post on my website um, and I know most of the world knows the singer Jimmy Buffett Jimmy mm-hmm. Buffett actually called me and said I just read about this fried chicken post on your website how do I get these orders I'm coming into Paris but my crew's going to Amsterdam how do we get orders on the train and I said I can't call the chef at six in the morning and have him prepare oh. the fried chicken but when you come back let me know in advance and I'll make sure that you have the fried chicken and I think oh. the fun of that post showed that French food is not the, the fancy, stuffy reputation that it's always had. French food is now really approachable. But I did see that fried chicken on the menu and couldn't believe it because poulet frites, which is 
poulet, which is chicken, and then frites right. means fried, F-R-I-T. The way that they write their lowercase <laughs> F looks like a G. So when I walked in and I saw it handwritten on the chalkboard menu, I thought it said poulet grits, not oh. free. And I said, get out, you have... You have chicken and grits. <laughs> and they said, no, it's fried chicken. And I looked at them and they said, you know, fried chicken. And I looked at them and I said, yeah, but fried chicken doesn't exist in, in Paris. And they said, well, it does now. Oh. So it's definitely not Southern fried chicken, but it's his own way of doing fried chicken, which he's quite proud of uh, that, uh, that that pleases me. And the fact oh. that I picked up this chicken and put it between my teeth, which appalled my French neighbors, but now they're all standing next to me doing the exact same thing. So if a little bit of the sauce is par- and in Paris here, I'm happy, then that's good. But uh, I love uh, that. And I have to ask, was it brass poulet or what kind of poulet was it? It's a, it's called brass. It's B-R-E-S-S-E. It's a yeah. um, variety of chicken that's down near Lyon, L-Y-O-N. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a blue-footed chicken. And it's incredibly special the way that it's uh, har- um, uh, raised and grown and kept in its conditions and its diet and et cetera. But it's one of the, the most well-known breeds of chicken here in France. But there's loads of other chickens as well. So, uh, But he he definitely, it's a, it's a much darker meat chicken, which, you oh, know, anyone okay. who doesn't like turkey, because right. we all like the dark meat on the turkey, you'll love a breast chicken because it's got beautiful, juicy meat, even if it's not dark. So uh, he's, he was he was thrilled to know I approved. And why does it have blue feet? It really has blue feet. It has blue feet. I have no. That's a great question. I have no idea why it's blue feet. It just is a is a variety of chicken. It's almost a purple color, actually, oh. and that's part of the reason. If it's forty euros for the entire bird, you definitely yeah. want to buy that from the open air market where the, the the breeder brings in the chickens that he's he's raised uh, you don't want to go to the grocery store you'll well again you'd never go to the grocery store to see this kind of variety because it's the most expensive right. variety so i'm using that as an extreme but if you went to the grocery store and saw breast chicken on a label you'd know it's phony but it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. exist that way but it's it's that kind of thing it's just a very special kind of bird it's very juicy mm-hmm. um etc but aside from it's if you took its feathers its skin its beak its head its feet off um you would still know it's breast chicken because the meat is a little darker and it's really juicy even if you ever cook it it's incredibly juicy so i would say it's one of france's most well-known chickens Oh, I am learning so much. This is just <laughs> just amazing. Well, now, there's more than just breast I, chicken, so that's I just know, one example. <laughs> I, oh, my goodness. This is just incredible. Uh, now, the other thing is the French market. You had mentioned yes. the French market. Could you describe yes. to uh, the listeners and myself about walking into the French market? And is there only one or are there several throughout Paris and and just what the savory and sensory experience is like. It's uh, the French markets actually make me smile um, mm-hmm. because uh, there's over 76 outdoor front, uh, farmers markets around Paris. Mm. There there's 20 different neighborhoods in Paris. Mm-hmm. Each neighborhood, depending on the ratio from tourists to visitors, has either between one and five different markets in their neighborhood. And the markets actually move. They're never open on Monday. They're open half days on maybe my market is open on my lo- my neighborhood market downstairs is open on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Another neighborhood might be Wednesday, Friday. Another neighborhood might be Friday and Sunday, etc. And French markets are truly an experience, especially on Saturday. It's the biggest market day of the week. 
because on Sunday and Monday, most of the stores and markets are closed in Paris. And we tend to overbuy on Saturday uh, because we don't want to be stuck without groceries over the weekend. But we tend to overbuy. So on Tuesday, it's the leanest market day of the week because we just need a little extra of this and a little extra of that. Or maybe your neighborhood market is on Wednesday. You just stretch a little bit. But Saturday is definitely the most festive part of the week. And I smile because right now you can't see what I'm seeing through my eyes. But my vendors in my market are incredible. I have a family who are making foie gras from the southwest of France. They just won the award for the best foie gras in France. And there's my little sausage guy, which I don't mean to say little in diminutive terms. He's just a term of endearment. But he looks like a little Pillsbury Doughboy version of Benjamin Franklin and his (laughs) dried sausages. He's got pure pork sausages and flavored sausages with herbs and olives and cheeses and nuts and fruits and vegetables, et cetera. But his sausages have won bronze, silver, and gold medals every year. Then I have my olive boys, which they bring their olives up from Provence, which they're absolutely phenomenal. They just taste like they just came off the trees. And, you know, going to the going to the market for me is, is, is saying, hello, how are you? How are things going? Look at the weather. How is your wife? Oh, try this new thing. It's an exchange that I don't get when I'm at home in the States, so to speak, that I that I miss tremendously. And just for example, they become part of your family. My sausage guy for the first time on Saturday morning, the first Saturday in twenty two years, he just physically wasn't there. Oh. I don't know his name. Mm-hmm. I just knew it was my sausage guy. I ran around asking everyone where is he? Is he okay? Everyone shrugged oh. their shoulders as they do. And I was very upset. I didn't know his name. I didn't know how to contact him. What if he'd had a heart attack? I was I was seriously concerned for him. The next Saturday when he showed up, I <laughs> threw my arms around his neck and said, oh, heavens, you're okay. And, fantastic. and he said, but Wendy, what are you talking about? Didn't I tell you I got married? And I said, wait a minute. What about the woman and the two teenagers that have been with you all these years? And he said, well, that was my wife. I mean, excuse me, that was my woman, but now she's my wife. We just decided to get married. And it was a huge celebration in the market. I was so relieved. And, and that that's the kind of festive atmosphere that it is. It's an exchange of recipes. It's it's a so it's a it's a place to socialize, and it's not a place to just go quickly and grab an apple and leave. It's a it's I, I, when it's market day. I mean, I don't know if you can hear the smile on my face now, but when it's market day, I'm out of my bed faster in the morning than mm-hmm. on any other day of the week because I cannot get there to. Uh, can we get there to buy some things, see what's new, see what's happening, say hello, how are you? And it's a it's a village-like atmosphere. So there's 76 yeah. markets around Paris, and depending on which neighborhood you're staying in, you should ask uh, your friends who you're staying with, your hotel that you're staying in, where is the nearest outdoor market? And you should go and experience it. It's truly um, oh. it's truly a magical experience. That is just great. a real community connection. It sounds. It truly like. is. It truly is. Now, is it outdoors year round? I mean, how cold does it get in Paris? Or? It is definitely outdoors year round. And wow. again, my sausage guy this time last year it was uh, the first of December. Mm-hmm. We had an enormous ice storm, which truly oh. doesn't happen that often okay. in Paris. He was the only vendor that showed up to the market. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't have a food tour scheduled that day. Obviously, it was, I mean, I mean, ice sheets coming down sideways. And But I was having coffee across the street from the market at the little local cafe. And I went around and told everyone in the cafe, I need four euros to buy you one sausage. 
And we took up a huge collection and I got some coffee and I went across the street and I bought at least 40 different sausages, <laughs> took him some coffee and said, you go home now, <laughs> which uh, that was a couple of years ago, which I don't think he's ever forgotten, uh, which was quite special. But to see him out there freezing and trying to make a living just broke my heart. Uh, but uh, no, the, the markets are there all year. But if it's terribly, truly harsh weather, which again, rarely happens in Paris. You just wrap up and you go. And sometimes they have a uh, a vendor that pushes spiced uh, orange wine through the market or hot chocolate and they yell out spiced wine, hot chocolate. And you get a cup and you wrap up and you do your shopping. So it's, uh, I actually prefer it in the winter than I do in the summer. It's just magical. Just magical. This this just sounds incredible. I am so eager to book a tour. I, I encourage listeners, please visit the pariskitchen.com and find out more about what Wendy Lynn is talking about and sharing with us. And the other thing that's so wonderful too is you have um, these recipes by famous chefs and and in France and they actually share their recipes, which was incredible. And one that I particularly loved and just got a little chuckle out of was the fried green tomatoes. And I understand that's from Daniel <laughs> Rose, who is from Chicago. And all those Chicago listeners, he um, actually opened up Spring. Is that correct? Is that the right? Yeah, uh, Restaurant Spring. spring. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So, um, and he made a special preparation of fried green tomatoes for you. He made it for the restaurant, which for the restaurant, okay, for the restaurant, uh, oh. and for Chicago listeners, uh, most everyone knows Chef Daniel Rose. Uh, he's a he's like my brother, and I'm so proud oh. of him. But he came here 13 years ago, and to study the history of mathematics, which is a whole other chapter in itself. But mm. he ended up taking a job in a restaurant kitchen to learn French, and. Mm falling in love with cooking and the cerebral aspect to cooking and the notion of terroir and where ingredients come from. And after working in several big restaurant kitchens, he opened his first restaurant spring here in Paris uh, four years ago now, I believe. And it was in an unknown little tiny part of Paris where no one would have dreamed of going, but it was 16 little chairs and he was cooking right there for everyone. He served everyone at one time, et cetera. And truly pretty much overnight, it was, impossible to get a reservation at the restaurant and two years ago he purchased a space near the Louvre Mm -hmm. uh, to open the new spring and after some pretty incredible (laughs) heart-wrenching jaw-dropping archaeological discoveries under the restaurant uh, supposed to be Uh, open six months after he signed the lease two years later he has one of the most successful restaurants here in Paris and he loves to see people from Chicago if not anywhere in the world but he, uh, I'm, I'm telling you now, I'm marking my calendar this time next year when the Michelin Guide comes out. I'm pretty confident that he will be the first American chef in France to earn a one Michelin star. He doesn't want the Michelin star. He did not do this to earn a Michelin star, but he truly believes in providing a wonderful experience where people can feel comfortable, but he's doing things with cuisine that not a lot of people do, which is truly paring it down. It's a very 
uh, low carb style of cooking. It's no, it's, there's no menu. It's a set menu. Uh, but sometimes he walks through the dining room with baskets of herbs on his hip and rubbing the finger, the, the flowers and the herbs between his fingers and sticking it up under people's noses and saying, smell this and what do you think? And everyone loves, everyone loves that experience. So for Chicagoans uh, who don't know about spring, it would surprise me. But if you don't, uh, he's, he's a truly fascinating and admirable young man to know for what he's done here. And so he made fried green tomatoes for the entire restaurant. I just happened to walk in the door and he said, I have something for you. (laughs) And I said, I need that recipe right now. So I love it. And the green zebra, is that right? The green zebra. Green zebra tomatoes. tomatoes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and so everyone, you're hearing this first here on Kitchen Chat about the prediction of Daniel Rose getting that Michelin star. That is so exciting. And I I hope that happens and sounds like it's well-deserved. That is, that is terrific. And to see a Chicagoan in Paris, that's, that's just great. Now, because most of the chefs, I assume, that, that, uh, with whom you interact there in Paris are, are French. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. And, and not only, I was so, so impressed with Wendy Lynn's latest blog, um, it's amazing that not only, you know, does she take these incredible, you know, tours, um, lead these incredible tours for tourists and, and visitors and all of that uh, within Paris, but she's also taking the chefs on tours. I love it. And, and yes, it's, it's amazing. And so um, I guess just recently you took a, a group of chefs um, to, to introduce them to um, Venice. Benisa, is that the right way of pronouncing? Yeah, we. The, uh, the I organized a, a. I organized uh, some food trips several times throughout the year for. Um, I have a core group of chef friends, mm-hmm. and ironically, in France, most of restaurants are closed on Sunday and Monday. Mm-hmm. And when the Sunday and Monday rolls around, we're all looking for something to do to blow off steam, to relax, to enjoy each other's company, and of course, we want to eat and drink somewhere. But because all of the restaurants are closed, including theirs, there's no place mm-hmm. to go. So last. Last year, I started organizing several times throughout the year a Sunday day trip. And for instance, the blog that you just read about, the posting I just read, you just read about, I took uh, eight chefs or eight people, excuse me, with some of the best chefs and restaurateurs in Paris. We flew to Venice, Italy. To lunch. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and it's, uh, I know it sounds fancy, but we planned it months in advance and we used EasyJet, which is uh, the, the kind of very high end uh, service industry, mm-hmm. but low end price ticket uh, carrier yeah. here in France. And we flew to Venice, Italy. We were, you know, as my post said, uh, nothing gets chefs out of bed at, before the crack of dawn on their day off, like the opportunity to have lunch <laughs> in another country. <laughs> so we flew down to Venice, Italy, and we had an amazing lunch and a private uh, wall of state an island just off the coast of uh, Venice called mm-hmm. Mazorbo, and the restaurant is Restaurant Venisa. And the Bissol, B-I-S-O-L family, have, are winemakers going back to the 1500s. And they found this property and renovated it and restored it 10 years ago, put a restaurant on it a year ago. And the island actually has its own vineyard, its own garden. They're sourcing everything on their menus from the garden, the vineyard, uh, to the fish in the lagoon, etc. And I organized a trip before 
before our lunch with the guys to go actually fishing for the first off-shell crabs of the season. So it was quite the day to be able to go. But, I mean, for me, so there's nothing more fun than learning about food. So if I can just get all these guys to New Orleans, that'll be the coup of the century where Aww. they can truly try Southern cuisine. But it was fantastic. So we're going truffle hunting next month. And oh. then uh, in January, we're going to uh, England for the day to have lunch at the, the world-renowned restaurant, The Fat Duck. And then now everyone's getting excited and putting together their own ideas for next year. So it's just oh. on tour for sure. <laughs> oh, this is, this is so exciting. Now, where does one go truffle hunting and what is that experience like? Well, if I told you where we were going, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> okay, the secret of the truffle. Uh, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's quite the secret thing, but uh, truffles are definitely grown in the southern part of France mm-hmm. um, in several different regions. Um, the white truffles are most well known from the Piemonte region in northern Italy and black truffles uh, from Provence uh, down in the south of France. Yeah. But these are tubers. They're, they're a spore that grow on the roots of oak trees. Hmm. That's loosely stated because they end up in random places, but it's truly the equivalent. If you have truffles in your backyard, it's truly the equivalent of burying gold bricks in your backyard. Really? It's a, it's a, it's a very expensive. Um, I can't show you with my hands, but maybe the size of a lemon might be about 500 euros. Wow. They're very earthy. They're shaved. They're uh, where you shave them over food, or sometimes you can put eggs in a jar with a truffle and risotto um, and just seal the jar, not just whole eggs, the raw risotto and the truffle, and leave it in for a few days. And it's quite well known here in France. It infuses the eggs um, once you crack the eggs and scramble them, etc., and make the risotto that they're infused with the flavor of this truffle. But I actually have friends who have truffle farms, excuse me, and they have uh, guys right now, because it's truffle season, they have guys out in the, spending the night in the vineyards with night vision goggles to make sure that people are not coming in to uh, bring in dogs or pigs to sniff out the truffles and dig them up, because if they do, that's their livelihood. They wait all year long for this opportunity. So it's quite the special thing. So next uh, month when we go uh, truffle hunting, uh, it's basically we're going to receive, a, we're taking the TGV, which is a speed train, and we're going down yeah. to Provence, and we're going to get a text message to go to a particular town that morning and we go to that town and then the guy shows up in an alley and he opens up his trunk. I mean, it's very uh, dubious, but um, oh. it's the way to get the way to get the best truffles without the guy having to go to market, et cetera. Uh, and then we all bring the truffles back and we all cook a certain dish with the truffle. But it's, uh, and again, it's part of celebrating terroir. It's part of celebrating yeah. regionality. It's a mm. part of celebrating seasonality. So the truffles mm-hmm. are a big deal right now. That I just have this vision. It's like Sherlock Holmes, you know. It, it <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> now, now with such an expensive, you know, um, item as truffles. What do you carry it in? Do you bring your Tupperware, or how do you transport a truffle? Uh, I just bring my little, uh, I'm looking at them now, the from Restoration Hardware. I've got my sugar cubes and things, and it's a glass uh, jar with a stainless steel kind of um Oh, what? How do you uh, tight uh, airtight lid? Um, oh, so I we just put them in that and bring them home, and you know we do what we do with them. And at Guy Savoie, that uh, uh, one of the dishes that he made to me that I was telling you about earlier, he does an artichoke soup, but he mm. has a black he shaves black truffles over the top of it. Wow. So the server comes out with this enormous funky looking mushroom thing and a beautiful white glove and he uses a shaver and just shaves it 
fresh over the top of the soup. Um, and another great dish here is to, you know, get the chicken. And mm-hmm. if you can get your hands on a truffle, you actually stuff the truffle and uh, underneath the skin of the chicken, and then you rub the entire chicken with butter and salt and herbs and roast it slowly, and it is just divine. Ooh, and then if wow. you put truffles in the mashed potatoes, don't get me started. <laughs> oh, this sounds good. I wonder if you can put truffles in the turkey. Would you can do it. You can you can truffle kind of? truffle goes truffle goes with everything, it, and it, truly with the the birds, you need to put the truffle underneath the skin so it infuses oh, um, the, the meat. Not not the skin, but underneath. But it's, it's truly a delicacy. So uh, wow. just talking about it right now makes me excited. <laughs> oh, this is great. I'm going to be going truffle hunting. And once again, it it grows these truffles. Something you you had related it to oak trees. What is the connection? Yeah, there there's no exact science to it because if mm-hmm. there were, then everyone would know where to find them. But for the most part, there are spore that grow on the um, roots of an oak tree and some of the trees here the roots can go a hundred yards so Uh it's nowhere near the oak tree so in France they used to use two 300 pound pigs to root out the truffles but have you ever tried to stop a 300 pound pig from getting something that smells good so (laughs) they were losing they were losing their crops and they couldn't stop them from eating them so now they've switched to actually truffle dogs who know how to sniff out the truffles and the reward is a treat in the owner's pocket not the truffle itself so uh it's 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 not an exact science but you know when you know you have property that you have truffles, you you just don't tell anyone. Hence the secret meeting in the alley, the second left past the bank, <laughs> down the hill, <laughs> between four and five o'clock in the morning, I'm selling them to you out of my trunk. It's uh it's uh it's it's quite it's quite it's quite fun. Oh, the, the, these these incredible collections of culinary experiences. It, it's just amazing. I, I just love hearing about this. And then so so with um Back to the fried green tomatoes. I just uh, go back to there with a spring with Daniel Rose and just becoming friends with the chefs, getting to know the chefs and chefs who have mentored you a lot with your culinary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, with all of this, um, you know, mentoring and experience with within the French cuisine, has it encouraged you to cook? And do you consider no. yourself a fun home chef? Absolutely not. I have no really? reason to be. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, when I have Daniel Rose and Guy Savoie cooking for me and Greg uh, Gregory Marchand oh. over at Bistro Frenchie, which is another very hard to get reservation here in town, um, uh-huh. I have a beautiful American style kitchen and et cetera. And I do love to cook but uh since i've been here i've just i've just realized i love to eat more than i do cook the relaxing yeah. it's it's not i've i've got a pretty pretty hectic life between doing uh food tours they're private so it's not groups it's one-on-one with people and really teaching them what they would like to know but also reviewing restaurants and doing interviews with chefs and etc and some days i come home at the end of the day and i'm just uh i've got two dogs i have to walk them and i love oh. them but i'm just a, I'm, i get lazy at the end of the day my brain thinks now what do i do and i truly rely on a recipe I had the day before at a restaurant and I just go to the market and I get it. I bring it home and I do it. But there's the the random few times during the year where I do enjoy stopping, slowing down and cooking. But cooking is Mm -hmm. something you need several hours a day to really enjoy doing, to tune out, to slow down, put on some music and relax. And 
And sometimes I just don't have that luxury. But when I do, I love doing it. It's just I just don't have the luxury of doing it every day. But again, when people ask me if I'm a, a professional cook, I say, absolutely not. I'm a oh. professional eater and I'm proud of it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But when you do cook, what is yeah. uh, a favorite recipe that you like to prepare? Uh, the easiest is saumonier, which is uh, the sole fish, S-O-L-E, mm-hmm. and it's just a beautiful uh, caramelized brown butter. Sometimes I toast sage leaves and walnuts, but it's just mm. very simple. It's just seared on its side and uh, on each side, and I just remove uh, the small the bo- small bones when it's on the plate. But it's truly one of those recipes that even Julia Child said to master saumonier and that was actually the dish that changed her life she I believe it was up in Rouen and she and her husband were making them way down from uh, England down into Paris she wasn't even to Paris yet and she had the saumonier this particular restaurant and she said this dish has changed my life and most people can say well I can fry fish and butter it's not frying fish and butter there's it's slow it's generous. It's Normandy butter. <laughs> Norma- yes, <laughs> it's, yes. it's just this, uh, it's an amazing, wonderful flavor. It takes four minutes to make this dish. It's absolutely phenomenal, and I think wow. it's my go-to. It's my go-to dish. Now, if Daniel Rose lived in my building, we'd be we'd have a southern restaurant downstairs. We'd be doing all kinds of stuff. Get in trouble in here, but <laughs> thank goodness for him. He doesn't have me as a neighbor. So oh, that is great. And and one dish I have to ask about too. Yes. I love fried okra. Have you introduced fried okra to France yet? Well, that's an interesting <laughs> story. The answer is fried okra, no. But uh-huh. I just recently discovered I was having a – I love gumbo, of course, because mm-hmm. New Orleans is one of my favorite go-to cities right. when I'm home. Right. And gumbo, as most people know, is a seafood or a chicken and sausage stew. Uh, gumbo is actually an old word for mm-hmm. okra. So in oh, France, if I'm looking for okra, I'm ask, actually asking, do you have gumbos? <gasps> right? Wow. And it's a West African word. So I just recently discovered gumbos, which is, you know, okra, um, mm-hmm. at a Thai, Thailand, I don't know how to say that in English, Thailandese grocery store, mm-hmm. where they're bringing in fresh gumbos, meaning <sighs> okra. From um, uh, from West Africa, and I am doing gumbo here. But frying is not necessarily something that's done. Even though I've been tickled pink, you've asked me about fried chicken and fried green tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) When I when I tell people that I'm making, when I told my sausage guy that I needed his smoked sausage and his chorizo so that I could make gumbo, Mm -hmm. he thought I was mincing the sausage to put inside okra, and it never dawned on me that he didn't realize. So, so people used to say we're making gumbo stew. But now people just say gumbo. And so gumbo is an old word for for okra. So I haven't introduced fried okra, but uh, people are starting to catch on to okra as a vegetable. I mean, some of my French friends, uh, French chef friends, have never seen a gumbo and okra. And I have to show them a picture on my iPhone to say, this is what a gumbo looks like. And they say, well, what is it like? How do you cook it? And I'm just laughing. I think this is fantastic. So no, no fried okra, no fried okra, but they're, 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 I'm teaching them about gumbo. <laughs> that is great. So just as you had uh, you know, thought this artichoke was a green pineapple, now you have introduced a vegetable <laughs> to the French that they haven't seen. That is just, that's just such a neat Well, they've circle. seen it. They just uh, it's not something that's in the normal range right. of what they're looking yeah. at. It's considered yeah. a little bit exotic because it comes from Africa. Uh, uh-huh. Even in New Orleans, it's a Creole, uh, it's a Creole or a 
Cajun, uh, excuse me, it's a Creole dish. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. that, so anyway, it's fascinating to look at French chefs to think that I'm actually calling okra by its correct name gumbo, and they don't know what I'm oh. talking about. When I show them pictures on my phone, they say, is that like a little pepper? So <laughs> oh, I <love laughs> maybe I should do an okra lesson. I don't know. I but, think uh, so, yes. And, and, and just please fry up a little batch for the Southerners. <laughs> I certainly will. Trust me. That is, oh, this is just so much fun. Just so much fun. And, and we have so much to cover. Oh, my goodness. If we could focus... Um, on chocolate for a moment, yes. and and um, I, I just also want to to mention and pay tribute to your little dogs Marie Antoinette and Magnum. <laughs> is that right? Magnum, that's right. Two American cocker yes. spaniels who are actually French. Oh, that and they go on the your little culinary journeys as well. And they with go you. with me all over France. <laughs> oh goodness, and and it's professional they eaters too. Oh, that's great. And do they have special food they enjoy or just your regular Purina or or whatever? No, they 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 get uh they get okra, chicken, apricots, tomatoes. They love fresh food. <laughs> oh, they have quite a puppy palate. That's amazing. That is so great. And the reason I mentioned, you know, I tie in um the tour of chocolate and mention Marie Antoinette, uh your the name of one of your dogs, is because there is an unbelievable tie-in to chocolate and Marie Antoinette that I read about on your blog. Could you share this fascinating story with our listeners? Uh, Well, there's a family here in France, um, the de Beauve, D-E-B-A-U-V-E, de Beauve uh, in Galais, G-A-L-L-A-I-S family, and they were the official chocolate makers, I guess, to Marie Antoinette and Louis. Mm-hmm. And of course, Marie Antoinette and Louis were the last kings and queens of France. And because there were uh, such a hatred for, for royalty after that, these poor guys had nothing else to do but actually uh, open a pharmacy to sell the chocolate. And the incredible tie-in is that chocolate it was always, always served as a medicinal ingredient. So if Marie Antoinette had a headache or her husband had a headache, they went straight to their chocolate box to retrieve a piece of chocolate because the pharmacist would actually put herbs or uh, rose petals or herbal remedy, so to speak, in the chocolate. And the chocolate actually disguised the flavor of the herb, so to speak. So when he finally opened the pharmacy to start selling chocolates. It was actually sold medicinally, and that was the first way that chocolates were presented to Parisians, was actually as medicine. So everyone took a chocolate a day to keep the doctor away. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> of course, now it's actually true. They say that, you know, the the dark chocolate is actually yeah. quite good for you. And one of my favorite uh, chocolate makers in France and, and in Paris is definitely a perennial favorite among Parisians. And his name, it looks like it's pronounced Patrick Roger. And in mm-hmm. French, of course, it's Patrick Roger. Oh, lovely. It's beautiful. He has an award mm-hmm. called the Meilleur Ouvrier de France which is a food award given every five years, and we nickname that the MOF, or that he's a moth winner. And it's literally a Lifetime Achievement Award, which he received in the year 2000. So that was 11 years ago. He was 30 years old, which wow. is quite the honor. Yeah. Uh, but he's also a chocolatier, which means he flies around the world sourcing amazing beans to bring back to Paris to roast and grind down to make his chocolate. Most people at 30 years old, if you're an MOF and you're a chocolatier, you sit back and say, 
I don't have to do much else. This is amazing. It's a, it's an award you win for life. It's actually the Legion of Honor is the award. He receives a chef mm. jacket with the Legion of Honor red, white, and blue collar sewn into the jacket. And his not only did he take it to the next level, his facility is on a small parcel of land where he's mm-hmm. growing herbs, spices, fruits, vegetables, and he has 20 beehives who are growing, wow. making honey that mm-hmm. he puts inside of his chocolate. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's, uh, Fascinating. he's, he's, uh, we, and he always makes, uh, huge lifetime, life size sculptures for his window, uh, his, <laughs> in his chocolate shop. And a lot of people think he's more, he's Willy Wonka, but he's not. He's more Tim Aww. Burton. He's a little like Daniel Rose. He's a little cerebral, but Aww. he definitely, it's playful and it's top quality chocolate and it's just phenomenal. I, he 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 just puts everything he can into making it fresh and perfect. That's amazing. And the tie-in to Marie Antoinette. And, and you know, going back to our prior discussion on truffles, of course there is a type of chocolate that's called truffle. Is, is that because of the, the black truffle? Or it's the shape of the truffle. Oh. It's, the shape of, it's the shape of a truffle. And between... You know, you and me and the listeners, you mm-hmm. know how uh, a truffle in a chocolate shop is about the size of, gosh, I don't know. It's very small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it might be big to you in terms of that it's chocolate, but that's actually quite a big truffle in terms of its size. So there's no truffle in a truffle. It's just a beautiful whipped chocolate ganache mousse whipped covered mm-hmm. in a cocoa cocoa powder uh, mm-hmm. that's derived from crushing down the cocoa beans. So truffles, truffles and chocolate and truffles and the, the country that you stuff under the chicken skin. Good point. Not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you couldn't. Unless you do, I guess, a chocolate, what is it called? A mole sauce or something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you could tie that into the chicken. Oh my goodness, Wendy Lynn, this time has absolutely flown by. I hope you will join us again on Kitchen Chat. I have learned so much, and I, I know our listeners have, have enjoyed uh, following uh, this quick little culinary tour with you and um, Paris and, and Venice, and, and there's just so much more I'd love to talk about, like your favorite female chefs and, and who you see is up and coming on that any time I'm here for you I'd love to yes. love to chat about it oh we will have to this will be continued for sure and <laughs> absolutely uh, with pleasure as we say in friends avec plaisir oh, merci and uh, and everyone please check out Wendy Lynn's website theparriskitchen.com she has just incredible resources and information on there about Paris if you're planning a visit, restaurants, recipes, chefs, everything. And um, also, I encourage you to try to book a private tour with her if, if time permits on both sides. And um, and just, yes, just enjoy. And as they, as they say in Brazil, aproveite, which just means just enjoy, embrace life, embrace the experience. And, and I think you, Wendy Lynn, for your time here on Kitchen Chat, and thank you, listeners, as we all take this culinary journey together. And I just hope that everyone will will take the time, like Wendy Lynn was describing with the French market, this community connection, connect with family, friends, and really, really take the time to savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. 
Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.